Please open your Bibles, if you have one, to the book of Hebrews, chapter 2. You'll find the notes this morning's message in the bulletin. And if you don't have a Bible, you'll find the text on the back of the notes. This morning, we will complete, God willing, our study of these few verses in Hebrews chapter 2 as we consider the question, why is it so important, so necessary, so essential that Jesus became human? I think I mentioned to you last time, last week, that the earliest Christian errors on the person of Jesus were not centered around denying his deity, but denying his humanity. Uh, The notion, how could an eternal, timeless, and undying God enter into humanity, grow, learn, die, suffer? No, surely he just looked human. Those were the earliest errors. And yet the New Testament insists the humanity of Jesus, the incarnation, is critical for his mission. And in this passage we look at this morning, we see that phrase in verse 17. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So I think this passage um, is well qualified to help us answer that question. Why, Why is the incarnation so significant and essential to the plan of God? Let's begin by reading Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 to 18, and then we'll have a word of prayer, and we'll begin. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but... He helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Let's pray. Lord God, what a glorious truth. Your son willingly entered into human history, took on flesh, shared in our infirmities and our weaknesses, walked among us. And Lord, we we ask that you would help us to see the glorious reason why, why this was part of your wise and good plan, and how knowing this might encourage us to persevere and hold fast to our faith. In Jesus' name, amen. So our text before us gives two primary reasons why the incarnation was necessary and essential. It's communicated grammatically through the subjunctive, um, a voice or mood of verb that communicates intentionality, purpose, and possibility. You see this um, in verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same, that through death he might destroy. There is your subjunctive, potential possibility. Why did Jesus take on flesh and blood? Amazingly, so that he could die. Until he took on mortality, mortis, the Latin for death, could not be applied to him. Only as Jesus became mortal was it possible for him to die. And his mission, 
His purpose was through his death to destroy the one who had the power of death, that is the devil, and to deliver those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. So Jesus took on flesh and blood, truly. He didn't just appear to, in order that he might die, and he died, we saw this last week, in order that he might destroy the devil and free us from the fear of death, the the, the death ushering us into the presence of God in judgment. This morning, we've got another so that in verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. So you're blank here, that he might become our high priest. That he might become our high priest. And we're going to talk a little bit about priest and what that means, because it's not a term many of us are familiar with, except as we think of religions, Catholicism and other, other religions, having priests and priesthood. And it's critical for us to understand, why does it matter? Why do we need a great high priest? What does a high priest do? How is this something to take courage and hope in? I hope we'll have an answer to this this morning. But the second reason Jesus took on flesh was that he might become our high priest. So let's look first in point A. He was made like us that he might give us help. Picking up in verse 16, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Now the point being drawn here is this. Here's your blank. There is no savior for angels. What would happen if one of the demons, Satan, repented Sought forgiveness? I don't know. What I do know is God has provided no savior for them, no deliverer for them, no sacrifice for them. So pause and consider the great privilege we have of man and man alone who bears God's image. God sent a savior, a deliverer, a helper. He has sent help for us. He has not sent help for angels. The goodness and grace of God, he does this freely, not under obligation, reminded of Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 8, where Moses is warning the Israelites not to become proud. I love this. It was not because you were more in number than any of the other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. The temptation might be as God blesses Israel, and as they grow in number and wealth and prominence, they might think, well, this is why the Lord loves us. Moses says, no, that's not why he loves you. Well, why does he love us then? It's because the Lord loves you. God set his love on Israel because the Lord set his love on Israel. It's his free, loving decision. God chose to send a savior for us. It was his prerogative and his freedom to not send a savior for angels because he gets to be God. He gets to do as he wills. And we're meant to marvel at that grace. For surely not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. What does he mean by the offspring of Abraham? Um, sometimes in the New Testament, that phrase is used to reference physical Jews. We see this in Acts 3.25, where Peter, speaking to the Israelites, you are sons of the prophets and of the covenant of God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. You are seed or offspring of Abraham. But I think the author of Hebrews is using the phrase not to mean physical Israelites, but here's your blank, He helps those with the faith of Abraham. Turning your Bibles to the Galatians. We'll mostly be staying in Hebrews, but I think it's helpful to see in Galatians. Galatians chapter 3. 
And we'll pick it up in verse 6. Galatians 3.6. Just as Abraham believed God, it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. It's not that we become spiritual Israel. Paul's point here is Abraham became the father of many nations. He blessed many nations. And therefore, those who partake in his blessings, which go to many nations, are his sons and daughters, are his children, are his seed or offspring. We Gentiles in the flesh are seed of Abraham because we share in the faith of Abraham. And so back to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 16. It's not for angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Christ has come to help those with the faith of Abraham. Christ is of no help, in that sense, to those without faith. We have a reason to celebrate Christmas. We have a reason to celebrate the incarnation and rejoice at the birth of Christ. But those without the faith of Abraham will receive no help. That's, that's the point. He's, he's narrowing our focus. Then verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So now we get to point B. He became a merciful and faithful high priest. Jesus became human in order that he might become our high priest. That may not be obviously intuitive. The logic here is he could not do this without. Notice the so that and it was necessary. And so we have to consider what does it mean to be a priest? What does it mean to be a high priest? And why is it necessary for Jesus, if he's going to be our high priest, to become human? First, let's consider the adjectives applied to this. He became a faithful and he became a merciful high priest. And I think the blanks here is he is faithful towards God and merciful towards us. I think that's how those those words are referenced. Jesus' faithfulness is in his service. I think that's the way this works precisely because the very next paragraph. Look at Hebrews 3. 1. Therefore, holy, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confessions, who are still on the same thought, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in all of God's house. Now, there's no question here. The faithfulness of Jesus is directed towards the one who appointed him, which is God. So Jesus became a faithful high priest, faithful in the service of God. He, was, he showed his faithfulness, and as a high priest, he served faithfully in reference to God. And merciful, I believe, in reference to us. That's, that's what's being put forward here. He became a merciful and faithful high priest. He is faithful towards God and merciful towards us. Which then brings us to the question, what, what exactly does a priest do? And why is it so important that Jesus become human if he is to become our priest? 
And here I think is the idea. I'm going to pause at this point for a little bit. He had to become like those for whom he would stand. Implicit even in the idea of priest is um, substitution or representation. That the one who priests for others must represent and stand for them. As I was studying what, what the priesthood do, if you were to ask what, according to the Bible, is a priest, what do they do? There, there are a lot of answers you could give. In Deuteronomy 10, 8, at that time, the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, to stand before the Lord, to minister for him, and to bless his name to this day. Those are some of the duties of the priests. Or to bless the people. Numbers 6, you know this passage. You shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. The priests also had a role in teaching and instructing the people of Israel, especially about the protocol for temple worship. Listen to Leviticus 10.11. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean, and you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. But I don't think those are the aspects of priesthood that the author of Hebrews has in mind here. Um, Turn turn to Hebrews chapter 5. I think we get the central point the author of Hebrews is considering here. What aspect of the role of a priest is central to it? And does the author of Hebrews have in his mind when he focuses on the high priesthood of Jesus? Verse 1 and 2. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. That, that I think, is at the heart. So if you think of both the priest and the prophet, two of the important religious roles for God's people, both stand between God and men. Both interpose themselves. Both mediate. They get in the between, the middle the prophet primarily, if you want to think of like Sinai and Moses and there's God, Moses comes down the mountain, faces the people, and speaks to them on behalf of God. He stands in between God and the people. The people cry out, no, 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 you, we don't want to touch that mountain. We'll die. You go talk to God. You come back and tell us what he said. And so Moses mediates as a prophet, and he speaks to the people on behalf of God. So again and again and again, the Lord says to Moses, you shall tell them, write this down. And that is characteristic of the prophetic tradition where the Lord put his words in Ezekiel's mouth or he gave him a message and then the prophet goes on behalf of Yahweh and he speaks to the people. It's primarily what's, what's in view of the prophet. Here we see the priest, central to his op- office, is standing between God and men but now facing God on behalf of the people. That's, that's what five one says. Every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men. On behalf of men, in place of, representing, that's the idea, men in relation to God. And so the the Israelites would come to the tabernacle, and they'd offer their sacrifices, and the priests would offer the sacrifices up for them and mediate these sacrifices to the Lord, whether they be thank offerings, gift offerings, or atoning sin sacrifices. That's the idea. So let's plug that into the humanity of Jesus. 
Jesus had to become human so that he could act on behalf of men. Do you see how he can only act on behalf of those for whom he identifies, for whom he is one of? He he has to stand in solidarity. He has to have at least one foot in if he is going to represent these people. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. So the blanks here again, priests primarily serve God on behalf of men. That's certainly, I believe, what the author of Hebrews has in mind. And Jesus could not serve on our behalf if he was not made like us in every respect. That's the crucial, crucial detail. So when you consider the baby in the manger, here is one who is made like us in every respect. Here is one who can mediate on our behalf. Here is one who can represent us to God on our behalf. Jesus took on flesh and blood for that purpose. And if he did not become human, he could not be our high priest. He could not mediate on our behalf. There is no savior for angels. And if Jesus did not take on flesh and blood, there'd be no savior for men and women. That's the idea. Secondly, point two here, another significant aspect of priesthood, especially the high priest that the author of Hebrews will make extensive significant reference to, is that the high priest offered sacrifices for sin on the day of atonement, most notably. What's, what's, the, what's the role of the centrality of the high priest? Well, he ran the priesthood. He directed the priesthood. They directed the temple worship sacrifices, but specifically the high priest on Yom Kippur on the day of atonement, he and he alone could enter into the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant and the showbread were and the mercy seat between the wings of the seraphim, and he could sprinkle blood first for himself and then for the people, and then he got out quickly because that was a holy place. And so that is not just general service on behalf of the people the author of Hebrews has in mind when he calls Jesus a merciful and faithful high priest, but specifically the offering of an atoning sacrifice. And that becomes clear as you read through the text. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. And then that priesthood is to do something further. So get get the logic. He had to be made like his brothers so that he could become a high priest so that he could Make propitiation for the sins of the people. Um, Your blank here, probably a big word. As high priest, he propitiated. And I want that to be the blank because that's the Greek. It's not to make propitiation. It's the verb. Greek does this all the time. They'll take a noun, disciple, and then just turn it into a verb. Discipleize. Gospel, gospelize. Propitiation, propitiated. He made propitiation. And that word means what's bound up in it is to remove wrath, to remove anger and hostility and to reconcile, to remove whatever is alienating or separating two parties. Jesus did that as high priest. Whatever hostility your sin and my sin has created, and that's the reason there's hostility. Not because God has wronged us, but because we again and again and again and again have wronged him And because he's holy and because he's just, there is wrath and there is hostility and there is conflict. And Jesus took on flesh, 
to become our high priest, to remove that wrath and hostility. Um, That's why we can sing, my God is reconciled. And people have asked me, that sounds weird. I'm reconciled to God. No, both parties are reconciled. There was formerly hostility. There was formerly alienation. And now the parties are reconciled. We are reconciled to him. He is reconciled to us. Because our faithful high priest removed the wrath and the conflict. This is at the heart of the incarnation. That the child in the manger took on flesh and blood to remove the hostility, the wrath, the guilt, and to reconcile two formerly opposed parties. That's, that's at the heart of the incarnation. As high priest, he propitiated the sins of the people. By the way, that verb, propitiate, only occurs in one other place. Uh, it's in Luke chapter 18. You remember the story of the tax collector and the Pharisee? Two men went up to the temple to pray. And literally, what Jesus puts in the mouth of the, of the tax collector is this. The tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, ESV, be merciful to me. Propitiate for me, a sinner. So, how did Jesus do this? First, he offered the sacrifice that made Peace. And this notion of Jesus being priest and offering a sacrifice consumes a lot of the text of Hebrews. If you've been in Dave Lample's class, this is just a refresher and a survey. Because, Dave, how many years did it take you through Hebrews? He's four years. Probably, I'm going to guess seven years in Hebrews. No? 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 Oh, no. Okay. I'm sorry. Well, it's still a guess. It's just a wrong guess, but okay. Anyway, Dave, Dave went methodically verse by verse through. But turn, turn over to uh, Hebrews 8. Hebrews 8. Jesus propitiated, removed the wrath, made it possible for the parties who reconciled. And linking this back to this, for the seed of Abraham, for the offspring of Abraham, for people with the faith of Abraham. So this benefit of reconciliation and this benefit of removal of wrath is only help for those with the faith of Abraham. Not all men everywhere are reconciled, but those with the faith of Abraham are. And so in Hebrews 8, look at verse 3. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if you on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. And then John to verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it's enacted on better promises. And then jump to chapter 10, verses 12 through 14. Actually, let's go back further. Let's go back to verse... Um, nine. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. 
But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. So Jesus, our high priest, offered up a sufficient sacrifice. And the contrast here is really clear. The temple worship was constant. All the pictures I've seen that people have tried to draw of the temple, are it's way too clean. It would look like a slaughterhouse. Every household in Israel would have to kill a lamb at the temple for Passover. Just start to do the math of how many lambs that would be, how much time that would take. It would just be nonstop. The priests, because that their sacrifices were only pictures, shadows, the author of Hebrews will say, of the true sacrifice, could never actually take away sins. They, they had to keep being made over and over and over and over and over again. And Jesus, because he is the supreme and better high priest with a better covenant, offers up a better sacrifice. And as opposed to those priests who just next, 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 Jesus sat down. Because it was done. That, that's, that's the comparison here. Look at verse 11 again, 10, 11. Every priest stands daily at his sacrifices, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices that can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for the time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet for, by a single offering. He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That's why you want a priest. That's why you want a high priest. Because a high priest like this can make a sacrifice and offer it up that is sufficient for all time cleansing sin. And all that's dependent on why he had been made like his brothers in every respect. But not only as the priest did he offer up the sacrifice that made peace, we also learn he was the sacrifice that made peace. Jesus functions as the priest making the sacrifice, offering the sacrifice. We saw that language. But the sacrifice he offers is himself. Turn to chapter 7. Hebrews. 7. Picking it up in verse 26. It was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest Holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. Here's another contrast. Those priests make repeated sacrifices, but also those priests have to first offer sacrifices for their own sins. This priest makes one sacrifice and he doesn't make it for his sins. First for his own sins and then for those of the people. Since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. There you have both pictures. He is the priest offering up the sacrifice. And the sacrifice he offers up is himself. It's amazing. Jesus is the one making the offering. And Jesus is the one who is the offering. He offered the sacrifice that made peace. He was the sacrifice that made peace. And he could only do that because he had been made like his brothers in every respect. This is why he had to be made like us. No humanity, no priesthood, no priesthood, no sacrifice, 
no sacrifice, no propitiation, and you and I have no hope abiding under the wrath of God. That's why this is a crucial Christian truth. That's why the incarnation is something to be marveled at and cherished and celebrated. So that's what a priest does. A priest offers sacrifices. But our text gives us another thing priests do and what our high priest does. Back in chapter 2, as high priest, he sympathizes with and helps us. As high priest, he sympathizes with and helps us. So the propitiations at the end of verse 17, he had to be made like a faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. But then in 18, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. This is another great truth. When we think of the sacrifice of Christ, the, the text of Hebrews is emphatic. Once for all, it's not repeated. That part of Jesus' priestly ministry is done. Finished. He said so himself from the cross. It is finished. But Jesus' priestly ministry is ongoing. That is not finished. Which is why the New Testament can say you've been saved and you're being saved. What is Jesus doing right now? He is saving you and me. Not in relationship to sacrifices for sin, but in priesting, for lack of a term, for us. Interceding for us, sympathizing with and helping us, getting us to the finish, not letting any slip through his fingers, holding us fast. And he offers us help. He is doing this actively now. Another remarkable truth tied to his function as Priest, he, as high priest, sympathizes with and helps us. Remember, the priest is the one appearing before God on behalf of men. Now, once for all, he offered up a sacrifice. That's not ongoing. That is finished. But he is still functioning in his priestly capacity as high priest for us. First, we see he experienced the suffering of temptation. He experienced the suffering of temptation. For because he himself has suffered when tempted... He is able to help those who are being tempted. Now, the author of Hebrews here, and in the text we'll look at in a few minutes in chapter 4, makes an interesting argument. It's an experiential argument. And when we're dealing with the divine, when we're dealing with God, we want to be careful and not just assume because something makes logical sense to us, it must be true. It's a dangerous game to play. It makes sense to me that God would, therefore God is. Better let God tell us who he is. But the rationale here is experiential. So we say things like God is omniscient, and we, we, we make these big claims, and God is omniscient. What does it mean? It means God knows everything. Well, what do you mean by that? For instance, does God know what it feels like to sin? I'm not sure I'd say yes to that one. And so God knows everything, but the author of Hebrews is making the point that until Jesus took on flesh and blood... Could we confidently say he knew what it was like to suffer, to be tempted? And in whatever sense God knew that, the author of Hebrews is pointing to the experiential knowledge that the Son of God gained in the incarnation. He know, that, that's what he's saying here. That's the argument. It's an experiential knowledge. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, not because he's omniscient, he is omniscient, 
But because he went through it himself, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Remarkable. Remarkable. The author of Hebrews wants us to see not just that Jesus entered into solidarity by taking on flesh and blood, but then by living our life, he experienced the sufferings of temptation. It's remarkable. Whatever God knew about pain and suffering, when Jesus entered into this world, he learned about it experientially. And then through his life, he learned obedience. This is what the author of Hebrews says. He learned obedience to the things that he suffered. And all of this equipping him to sympathize and minister to us. I'll pause here for a moment. Oftentimes, God letting us go through suffering and trials does the same thing. It equips us to minister to others. It equips us to sympathize with others. Don't be surprised that God takes you through dark places. This is how the Son became equipped and qualified to sympathize with us through the suffering and the trials and the temptations that he faced. God God may be leading you through a dark valley precisely to equip you to minister to others. But back, back to our text here. He experienced the suffering of temptation. And look back in chapter 2 to verse 10. It was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now, in what way was Jesus imperfect? Certainly not morally. But the high priest who would represent his people had to be able to sympathize with them. He had to be able to identify with them experientially. And prior to the incarnation and prior to Jesus' life and suffering, he had not experienced what his people experienced. That's that's the rationale here. So he's an imperfect high priest only insofar as he does not yet fully share the experience of the people for whom he will priest on whose behalf he will stand. So Jesus' incarnation and his suffering are what equip him to be our perfect high priest, perfectly qualified high priest. And I know this is dangerous language. You don't want to be a heretic, but that's what the text says. It's fitting, bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect or complete or fully qualified through the things that he suffered. Consequently, point two, he is not ashamed of his brethren. Now, we're heading to a truth that I take tremendous comfort in. Um, part, part of what we see in Christ taking on his priesthood and his humanity is that he is able to draw near to God on our behalf, but also because Jesus entered into our suffering experience, we can draw near to him. I'll remind you again of Mount Sinai when Israel gathers and the mountain shakes and there's lightning and the people are terrified and they say, we don't want to go anywhere near this mountain. We'll die. Moses, you go, you go talk to God for us. And Jesus does this. He bridges between man and God. But you may be tempted to be terrified of drawing near to Jesus. And there's a sense in which when you see him in the book of Revelation with his glory restored, I'd be scared too. And especially when we're dealing with sins and temptations, we might be tempted to think our high priest would be disgusted with us. I mean, there are some sins we just don't talk about. There are respectable sins. And then there are some sins we, we, 
We fear, even in the body of believers, that if we were honest about the sins we struggled with, we'd be rejected. Why do you, oh, that's kind of gross. Why do you struggle with that? Why do you want to do that? Why are you thinking that? And, and so we can fear, and one of the reasons we're not transparent with our own struggles is we fear that we might not find sympathy and help, but disgust and rejection. And the author of Hebrews argues that because he has been suffered through what he is tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus knows what it's like and how hard it is to bring his body into perfect obedience. Jesus felt the force of hunger in the wilderness when Satan tempted him. He he never weakened, he never sinned, but he felt the full force of temptation. And turn turn over to chapter 4. The argument the author of Hebrews makes is that based on that experience, we can believe and be encouraged that he will not turn up his nose at us in disgust, but rather give us help precisely when we need the help. It's one of my favorite passages in the Bible. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. Since then we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. So take that double negative and make it positive. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize. Therefore, we do have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. I'm to draw near, you're to draw near, we are to draw near to Christ with confidence precisely because he can sympathize with us. This is another function of his priesthood, all predicated upon his humanity, made possible by the incarnation. As priest, he's able to offer up the sacrifice. As priest, he's able to be the sacrifice. And as priest, he's able to help us in our weakness. He is not ashamed of his brethren, is what Hebrews 2.11 says. For, we, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them his brethren. That's a remarkable truth. I am a sinful person. I have thoughts and temptations that if you knew about, you might be tempted to move away. Christ knows my sin. He knows your sin. And he's not ashamed to call us his brethren. He's not ashamed of us insofar as we are being sanctified. We are being conformed to his image. It's a glorious truth. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them his brothers. Take your struggles. Take your temptations. Take your weakness to Christ. He will not shove you away and spurn you. He will give help. He will give sympathy. Don't hide in the corner like a dog who's been naughty. Draw near to your Savior. All of that made possible because of the incarnation. He offers us grace and mercy in our time of need. Again, back in Hebrews 4, 16. When do you need grace and mercy more than when you're being tempted? When you've fallen, when you've succumbed to temptation. I, I think that's when you need grace and mercy the most. Not when you've had a good stretch. Because that can be our temptation, right? Our temptation can be. When I've been faithful, when I've been doing my Bible reading, when I've shared my faith, then I can boldly come before God. I've been a good boy. The the more I start doing that, the more I'm functioning as though my righteous behavior is the basis for my acceptance. 
And the temptation can also be if I've skipped my Bible reading and I've been angry with my wife and I've been lazy and I've been unfaithful, then like the dog with his tail between its legs, I can sort of hide in the corner. That's unbelief. Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I never need grace and mercy more than when I need to repent, when I need to get up after I've fallen. That's, that's when I need grace and mercy the most. And because we have a high priest who has been tempted, who has suffered, who has been made perfect, we are told to do that very thing. Because he isn't ashamed of us, and he doesn't cast us away. And he gives us help. Finally, final implication of Jesus High Priesthood, before we sing our closing song. It's not really in our text, but I had to go there anyway. Is this. Um, as high priest, he is interceding for us at this very moment before God's throne of grace. Where is Jesus right now? What is he doing right now? Well, let me show you. Hebrews chapter 7. We'll just look at Hebrews 7, Hebrews 9, and then Hebrews 10, and then we'll close. Hebrews 7. Let's start in verse 23. The former priests were many in number, because they are prevented by death from continuing in office. The author of Hebrews is making another one of his Christ is better points. Christ is better because he only had one sacrifice, not made repeatedly. Christ is better because he needs no replacement. He, he has a permanent priesthood. The former priests from any number because they are prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. That's a glorious truth. Christ was raised from the dead, and now death has no hold over him. He always lives. And what does he always live for? He always lives to make intercession for them. When your and my measly, weak, and feeble prayers go up to God, there is one in God's presence interceding on our behalf perfectly, righteously, effectively, Turn to chapter 9. Almost done. We'll pick it up in verse 23. Thus it is necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. That's what he's doing right now. Um, this, this paragraph has Christ appearing three times, the present, past, and future. This is the present, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. In verse 26, we see the past one. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages, to put away sin. So that's what he came and did. That's what's finished. But now he is appearing in the presence of God on our behalf. To take heart. 
draw near to God's throne. You have a faithful, compassionate, sympathizing high priest in the throne room pleading your case on your behalf based on his righteousness and sacrifice. Finally, turn to Hebrews 10. This is the the so what that the author of Hebrews gives to the doctrine of the priesthood of Christ. I remind you again, Jesus had to be made like us so that he could become a high priest, so that he could offer up an effective sacrifice, so that he could sympathize and give help to us. And all of that is meant to provoke a response in us. Hebrews 10, 18. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any sacrifice offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, so here's the conclusion. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus... So what's going to happen, you're going to get three senses and then three heads of lettuce. Three lettuce. Sorry, that's a bad joke. Um, prefer an oratory subjunctive. Um, since we have confidence sent to the holy places by the blood of Jesus, since the sacrifice is sufficient, since the sacrifice propitiated God's wrath by the new and living way that he opened for us, the curtain that is through his flesh, verse 21, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, Then we get to the lettuces, sorry, two senses and three lettuces. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So the first, let us draw near. Don't shrink back. Don't be the dog in the corners. Draw near the throne of grace because there's a sufficient sacrifice and because there's a sympathizing high priest. 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Persevere. Don't grow weary. Don't be double-minded. Don't be like Lot's wife who turned back. Hold fast. You have a sufficient sacrifice. You have a great high priest. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promises faithful. 24, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. It's not just gather together. Give thought. This is what you should be doing Saturday night. How can I tomorrow encourage part of the body of Christ to hold fast and be faithful. This is, this is why we need to be a body because we're not all holding fast at the same strength at the same time. And I need you and you need me and we need each other to encourage each other. Hold fast. Our, our priest is faithful. Hold fast. Our, our sacrifice is sure. Hold fast. Give thought. This is why we need to gather together as a body. This is why congregations need to congregate. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is a habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. So I'll call the worship team up, and as they come up, I'll just remind you what we've seen. He becomes our high priest, taking on our flesh. As our high priest, he offers sacrifice for sins. As our high priest, he sympathizes with us and offers us help. And as our high priest, he is even now interceding for us before the very throne of God above. Please stand.